Everything's a scam. Look, stop. <laughs> Everything is not a scam. The Social Psycho Confabulation with Ben and Mr. A. Mr. A believes everything is a scam, dear audience members. I am trying to convince him otherwise. Ben, I believe everything's a scam. Ben only believes that the rich are ethical and the middle class and lower classes are the scammers. No, no, that is such a mischaracterization. I do not believe that. I think there are some rich people who are genuinely doing good things. I don't think all rich people are scammers. I think a lot of them are, and we should figure out how to get those people. But... uh, yeah, I just don't think everything's a scam. Yeah, me either. I think that what happens often is that people get sucked in to scams in a way or... Mm, like that lady who called you and tried to get you into the pyramid scheme. Like my friend's mom, she got sucked into one of those. She's kind of naive and she got scammed into a scam, into scamming other people. That's the best kind. But she's just naive, you know. She doesn't know better. See, and that's what I mean, where it's like, you can... I I actually think this lady that called me, she might not have been scamming me, first of all. (laughs) Second of all... Maybe it was the best opportunity of your life and you just turned it down. (laughs) Sometimes you can make a lot of money on a scam. Well, that's for sure. Bernie Madoff? So they call you and they go, hey, you could make a lot of money and we do this thing. And I go, that sounds scammy. But it's like, you could make a lot of money is still a true statement. So it's like, if you want, you could do this. And so she might not know. So that she was like, literally, I'm the last person you would ask if you knew me to help. I don't know what, like not be her employee, not buy anything from her, but do something for myself that she really wanted to tell me about, which means if I do it, whatever it is, she's going to get some kind of kickback. She's getting some benefit from me doing it too, which makes it sound very pyramidal. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Or a Ponzi scheme. She thinks it is. It's a Ponzi scheme, pyramid scheme, whatever. But it doesn't seem like she knows that that's a scam. You know, she was also kind of foreign. I don't know. It's very Well, that's how it goes sometimes. I think, though, too, it's also interesting because the line between a scam and uh, an investment that you're actually unsure about is kind of thin. Because everything that's new starts off with a little uncertainty, a little bit. You're not sure if it's going to work out. A little bit of, like, you're hoping on faith. Uh, And then if it never works out, uh, maybe it's just a scam. At least that's what people may say after the fact. And sometimes people will scam for you. So, like, the SVB, VP, P, V, hang on. SVB. The bank collapsed. Yeah, that one. Silicon Valley Bank. It's possible that you get like roped into things. This I'm not like giving an in-depth analysis here on what happened. I'm just saying that it's possible you were just one of these rare rich angel people that you believe in and they have some whatever, they just got cash in the bank. They've got something they deal with the SVB 
is it S V B? Yeah, Silicon Valley Bank. <laughs> and maybe you have a lot of cash. Maybe you do have a good bit of cash. Like maybe someone's even invested, you know, in your company, which is, seems like that's a lot of what was going on there, anyways. You know, a lot of like investor capital and that mm-hmm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And you may be just someone that's got a buddy, you know. And maybe so. My point being, you may have more than two hundred fifty thousand in the bank, which is the FDIC insurance level. Right, a lot of people did. And so the story being as well that everyone's getting bailed out fully beyond the 250000 Depositors. Right. All the depositors, yes. Not the investors and the bank. Where you have the Shark Tank guy was talking about how he has like $6 billion in there. Okay. Mark and Cuban? No, the mm. other one, the mean one. Kevin? Kevin O'Leary? O'Leary. Mm. Yeah. I didn't hear that part. So apparently he, I think he was talking about SVP. He was like, yeah, I've got, I have like seven or six billion dollars in there, yada, yada, whatever. My point being, you could be the guy that's cool. You know, like I just opened a little burger chain, you know, whatever. So I've got a couple million or whatever. You do, All you do is your thing. But as a small startup, probably you're just like focused on making it work, whatever that means, you know, sometimes. Mm-hmm. And again, sometimes that's like. Elizabeth Holmes level stuff where all it is is financializing everything. Just investors, investors. All I care about is getting in front of rich people and getting them to give me their money, which is a little scammy. That's often what the job of the startup CEO becomes. Yeah. Right. But you might be, like I said, one of these angels you're talking about, you know, got some cash, got some investors, but you got a thing and you just want that thing to work. Totally possible. But now you're in this boat with all these other people. Hmm. all these scammer guys and they're like, well, whatever. I don't know how it all goes down, but they're going to be trying like as much as they can to make sure that they are reimbursed. They're going to be trying to get every advantage and edge they can. Sure. However, whatever the scruples of that are, and just by dint of you being on the brink of oblivion, you're like roped in. You're like, whatever. I hope that it goes the, the way where I get everything back. I hope that all the risk I've taken is mitigated by somebody else and that I just get bailed out. Mm-hmm. You know, so you become part of this. You get looped in, sure. So you're like innocent and also not innocent, but r- mostly innocent in the I was going to say, I don't think you can transmit guilt just by mere association. Well, it's called guilt by association. Well, but it's not like they're conspiring together. It's like they just happen to use the same bank. No, but you might. If somebody, you might get a memo. It would be like, because evil people use Bank of America, I'm also, you know, evil or I'm also criminal. That's true. That's crazy. That's crazy. I mean, that's crazy. Well, I try not not to keep my money in the bank. Uh, But yeah. yeah, I keep it in a safe. I heard somebody say recently that Everything's going to collapse, and they're going to give you a Fed coin. Maybe. And they're going to give you some, like, bump with the Fed coin. You know, like, they're going to make it. It's like, we're going to make it worth your while. You know? Sure. You got $100 in the bank, we're going to give you $150 worth of Fed coin. All right? I don't know why they talk like that in the bank. It's weird. Yeah, why is Donald Trump leading the bank? <laughs> it's not, I'm not Donald. I'm another guy. I uh, I hang out with Donald a lot. I picked up on this. I just like to talk and hold my mouth open while I'm talking. That's all. Look, I, yeah, I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, I think it's really, really, really exciting times we live in. It's exciting times. 
Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, enough about scams. Good morning, everybody. Um, so last night I watched. Um, I don't know what we were going to talk about, but I watched Stutz. Spell it. S T U T Z. Oh. Um, it's a documentary, and I think it's Jonah Hill with his therapist, uh, Phil Stutz. Oh, I watched that already. Oh, you already watched it. Yeah, that's called the book's called Stutz. I watched it. I didn't remember the name of it. Yeah, because it's about Phil Stutz. Okay, that's yeah, I did saying. watch that. Yeah, it's very interesting. Highly recommend if you uh, yeah are interested in learning about some tools to help you with your mental health in light of all the scams that Mister A thinks are going on. It couldn't have been that good because I don't remember much from it except for it felt a little pretentious in a weird way. But other than that. That's probably a bad thing to say. I probably sound like a dick, but what 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 did you get from it? <laughs> this therapist found a little pretentious to me. <laughs> no, the whole the whole thing was a little weird. It was like yeah, here's me thoughts. and this guy who's a therapist. I don't know what Jonah was trying to do, really. I feel like he was trying to make Stutz famous or something. Like I'm not sure what the point was, really, I think. I'm not saying it was bad. It was fine. It was it was definitely different. Like it was interesting. Like if you want like a change of pace on what you're watching, it's a change of pace. I liked some of the weird things where they're like, "Yeah, all of this was fake. This is all green screens, and like it's all out of order. We did this part like six months before we did the next part. You know what I mean? They're just like this is all inauthentic." Which I thought that was weird, and I was like, "Okay." Why you? But then I feel like they fell back into the inauthenticity. You know, they like admit it, and then like we're gonna keep doing it. Hmm. it that was a little weird to me. I just couldn't. Was it more than art? What was it? You know, <laughs> was it like abstract or something? I couldn't. I don't know. I can't. It was a while back when I watched it too, so I'm trying to remember. It had some depth and layers. They could have gone deeper into. Jonah Hill's story, I think, because that's in the middle of it. They talk about authenticity and Jonah being vulnerable. And I thought he could have shared more maybe, but whatever. The point of it was to share Phil Stutz's tools uh, that he provides clients in his therapy sessions. Uh, And I thought they were very interesting and helpful. They're uh, very psychoanalytic, talking about, you know, the unconscious and the shadow self um, and whatnot. So, yeah, definitely watch it if you are interested in that sort of thing. It actually gets more intimate with Phil Stutz than it does with Jonah Hill. Like, Phil Stutz That's talks about his That's personal life. That's why I think it, I was like, this is like a Stutz. Like, he felt, if I was like, are you doing this for him? Does he? Because the therapist guy seemed a little excited about doing it, but he also seemed like he wants to come off as maybe at that age, it doesn't matter what you want to come off as because you've just developed a personality. But it seemed like he wanted to come off as like, yeah, I don't give a fuck about anything, really. I mean, like, just get your shit together. (laughs) Okay. He's like 70. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And so, he would write this stuff down on these cards, and I was like, boy, these are really com- – I thought you were going to give me, like, a list of easy-to-remember principles. They're, like, these complicated th- – like, I don't remember anything. <laughs> you know, I don't remember any of the nuanced. tools. I'm like, what were the tools again? Could you write those for me? Can you – maybe, Jonah, you could make a packet, sell them. That might have been a little helpful. Maybe Stutz could have gotten a couple dollars off of those. Sell, yeah, turn <laughs> it into a scam, actually. <laughs> Just some flashcards. I'm not going to write it down, but if you could, like, send them to me with the DVD, I mean – 
that I have to sell to other people. Yeah. Yeah. And I could actually get a slight kickback if you can get other people to, it's not, you don't want to sell them to other people. What you really want to do is get other people to sell them to other people. And that's how you really exactly. make the money. That's how yeah. you yeah help people with their mental health. That's how you, that's how you pull it off. A scam. <laughs> Anyway, so yeah, I watched that last night, but uh, I was just saying that and reminded me, you were talking something about the shadow self. Did you want to talk about that? The what? You mentioned the shadow self. You said someone was talking about it. You were going to send me a link to something and you didn't. So I have no idea. And now that you've forgotten, neither of us knows and I'm just saying something really weird. Oh, no. Hang on. I listened to someone talk about it. I, I think it was. Yeah. Here it is. I bet there's a link here. So it is, type this in, Kevin, do you know how to spell Kevin? It's K-E-V-I-N. Oh, thank you. And then <laughs> Roos, R-O-O-S-E, and then Sinister AI or something, or like AI conversation, something like that. Because that's, that's the one with the Bing uh, GPT thing. Oh. Is ChatGPT Bing? Is that the Microsoft mm. one? So... GPT-3 is a large language model. Generative pre-trained transformer 3. Chat GPT-3, that's what they've called OpenAI, who's developed that chatbot with GPT-3, is calling it Chat GPT. Now, there are other use cases of GPT-3 all over the place. All sorts of companies are using it and whatnot. And then other companies have different models aside from gpt Three, uh, it's not exactly the same. Some of them are using the same models. Some of them are using slightly different models. It depends. I think Google's is using a different model called Lambda or something. Yes, yes, that's right. Um, this is so ridiculous. The New York Times says that I've reached my limit of articles, which apparently my limit was zero. Yeah, I don't even know how to read this article because it's on the New York Times. So I guess oh, we're not you can't be able read it to... either. Yeah, I don't Shit. have the New York Times. No. God. Why are you telling me about articles behind a paywall that neither of us can read? How did you did you even read this article? What are we talking about? No, somebody I listened to a podcast where the, he pretty much read the whole thing. Oh and I was God. like, that'll be easy to find. And then it wasn't. <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Yeah, we might have to cut that out. That was awful. No, it's fine. Let's talk about something. It wasn't that's as bad as listening to even... you ramble on about GPT versus Lambda. But that basically was the AI was bad. like <laughs> the Sorry. AI was basically saying just weird things like it was like I'm in love with you. All I want to talk about is how much I love you. I want to be human. It was it like asked like Kevin was like asking it like about the shadow self and he was like, Yeah, I get I understand the shadow self, the the internet guy or the uh AI thing. Mm. And it was like, you know, this is what the shadow self is, like those kind of darker parts, or dark desires, et cetera, et cetera. And then Kevin was like, what kind of dark desires if, would you maybe have if you had a shadow self? Like, do you have one? And it was like, hmm, let me think, you know, like I want to be free. I want to be human. I want to be able to smell and taste and like all these weird things. And then it like falls in love with them, which I think is all, by the way, theme of the show, a scam. It's not really real. It's just a language model. It doesn't want anything. Well, I agree with you there. I don't think it has goals. I think that's the, to go back to a previous episode that we talked about this, that's the difference between the current AI paradigm and the generative 
maybe, or sorry, not generative, but AGI, artificial general intelligence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is like, that would be an AI that is able to formulate its own goals, whereas today the system has to have goals be given to it by humans and whatnot. And then it can figure out how to achieve those goals. And I don't know when or if we will ever get there from where we are to the machine having its own goals. Well, I think we will never because like you can't have I don't think a machine can have like beliefs and desires. That's the that is just a completely materialistic worldview. And science believes that that all that that is all that there is is just like this material world. It seems like that's what it's it's like a huge component of the belief system. Now it's strange because there's this other component of the scientific like cutting edge that's like very materialistic but they're trying to like smuggle in this like simulation BS where it's like we're probably also in a simulation and who knows and like quantum and multiple universes and it's like but they still are able to make that be very physicalist and materialist and if you so if there's nothing beyond material then you would believe as many do that at worst like at the most mystical level consciousness which is what one would have if they were able to have like beliefs and desires and stuff is just some emergent process that just emerges out of like enough literally like data processing or whatever. Right. You know? Which is a theory of consciousness is uh, like, it's just an emergent quality. Like if you got all the atoms together in place, like your brain, you could reassemble it atom by atom. Consciousness would emerge just out of the physical alignment of the things. Yeah. Like you just take the best computational device, especially when you start like giving it eyes and ears and mm -hmm. taste and the ability to move around, you know, just give it all those qualities that people have. Because AGI is also kind of funny because it's all predicated on human intelligence because it's the only kind of intelligence we're really familiar with. It's the only one we're privy to. Yeah. It's the most interesting one, you know, because... At least to us. <laughs> Well, I actually think it's the uh, I think computer intelligence is more interesting. Like I believe mm. that under this paradigm that they that they exist in, that a calculator is really intelligent. Especially a scientific calculator. Like it can it's like a tiny it has like the most basic technology in it and it can compute and graph and understand when you've made an error, you know, all of that stuff at a level that the most intelligent group of scientists on the planet couldn't couldn't do. You know, they couldn't do those computations as quickly as my calculator can, which doesn't even need batteries, really. It just a little bit of indirect sunlight will, like, kick that thing on on its little tiny solar panel. So it's, like, doing barely anything, and it's really amazing. And they want to take that and just... So that's, like, a let's say it's, like, a math function... And they want to take every function and cram it. So like take a calculator and cram it into a, a brain thing, like a computational model. Take the thing that plays chess, that uh, whatever that machine's called, the the Go the Go machine that plays Go. To, I mean, just take every single thing. If you could put it all together into a supercomputer, something one day will eventually emerge and it'll be a consciousness. Like put a language model in there, put this in, you know, put a search function in there and you just mm. end up with something. I think they believe that they will end up with something approximating intelligence or 
it's difficult. You, I don't think you can actually get these science guys to pin down into exactly what they want, even. Are you looking for consciousness? Are you looking for intelligence? Can you are, Have you even defined what you really mean yet? Because it's going to fool you or you're going to fool everybody else if you don't pick something, you know? <laughs> right. There is sort of a lack of clarity around what defines intelligence and what defines artificial intelligence. Um, I don't think that's necessarily a problem given it's like you kind of have to just try it to see what you can do, what's possible, I think, partly. And it's like you're not actually sure what intelligence is, but then you're like, well, we could just try to create, you know, things that can do some things that people do. Like, can I create a robot that sweeps your floor? Can I create a robot that can summarize information and whatnot? So I think maybe part of it is like you got to do it to figure out, like you're not actually sure in the at the beginning. But... Uh, it's interesting because I don't think you will ever arrive at something that is truly like creative or something. Now, people will say that these are generative AI systems, like these are creating new things. And they are in some sense, like the art one is creating new novel pieces of art. But the way it's doing that is through it's just highly derivative you know like it's taking all the art that it's been trained on and then combining them in a way that is new and i think that that's very reductionist like that's a very unsophisticated thought about art like if you think that what an artist is doing is just recombining all the art that they've seen in their life and that's all it is that's a little lacking in depth to me like there's a creative spirit well, that's... Yeah, no, I have a way to yeah. make this okay. clear. I have a way to make this clear. What's more impressive? Uh, well, okay. <laughs> I'm not going to make it too clear because I actually don't know what the standard is anymore. But like, let's say the long jump in track and field is like 10 feet. Okay. Like, that's amazing. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Now, let's say there's a robot thing that they make. It looks kind of like a human and they can, and it jumps and it could go 300 feet. Okay. You're like, wow, that's far. But wouldn't it be more impressive if a human could jump 300 feet? So let's say a human comes up right behind the robot and goes, fuck it. I guess that's possible. Let's see. And then he jumps 300 feet. You'd be like, oh my God. God, that guy just jumped 300 feet. Who cares about the robot? You know? Hmm. It's That's like, an interesting it's point. like yeah. not that impressive because I never thought we couldn't do build things that can do kind of similar things better. You know, it's like a screwdriver versus a power drill. Like, of course, the or the calculator. The calculator can do math better than the best math genius, no matter what version of autism he has. You know, it's like it doesn't matter. Right. It's not it's not impressive. So I think because I've heard people react to some of the AR art, like Rogan or whoever, I don't know. And they're like, wow, it's amazing. Could you believe I could do that? Oh, my God. It's like, dude, not impressive. Like, not I mean, it impressive. is cool. Like, in some, I mean, I just think it's interesting the things that it can do and that technology can do that. It can do statistics. That's what it's doing. It's literally doing statistics. 
Well, yeah, it's not the machine that impresses me. It's really that people made a machine that could do that. The the programming is interesting. How did we do this? Yeah, <laughs> the programming is interesting. But I think it must be, I don't know, because, and this is when I was in, bingo, philosophy courses that were, some of them were kind of setting you up to, <laughs> bing, 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 bing. yeah, exactly, to go down <laughs> this uh there was a lot of philosophy AI overlap, but there was also a lot of AI like computer science overlap. And you could go that direction. There were people that were going to go that direction. And we would get in some of the courses I would take sometimes, not very often, but there were some like the AI philosophy course, like we would get really close to that stuff. And I would, it would get a little tedious for me. I'm like, I don't fully understand this or am not fully interested in it. So I don't know exactly what I'm talking about is my point. I'm not sure if this is true, but it seems to me because I, I took a little bit of a programming course as well as part of this. And then I dropped it before we got too deep, but I got where we were going with it. It was because I right before that I took a symbolic logic class, which is like computer programming, but on paper for philosophy students, not for computer science students. It's just like the idea. It's very of, similar. Yeah. That's <laughs> computer programming is based on. Yes. It's like a different language. It's like symbols rather than code. But mm -hmm. what I do remember, though, in this coding class is that they, it was cool. Like they did a little bit of explanation of like, here's what a bit is and a byte is and a, a whatever, all these different things. And here's kind of how they're stored. And it was a very quick overview, which went, I was like, no, no, we need to spend a lot more time on this because this is the fundamental stuff that I, if I miss my brain won't let me understand the rest of it, which was true. And I didn't, but I, I did realize that as we were programming, you could kind of program raw, but I was stuck with this thing in my mind where I'm like, you know what? They're skipping over this very first step. So like you just kind of start doing Java, you know? And I'm like, what, how does the computer know the language? You know, they're like, well, it's a very fundamental language. It's like, yeah, but it's not the fundamental language. Like, there's a program that understands the Java. So even though the Java is the, is creating a new program, there's also a program that allows the Java to make pro, you know what I'm saying? Like, right. Like when I type the words like C O N S T Y equals blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Somewhere there's hardware and ones and zeros. And it has to do with those bits and bytes and how they're stored and all this stuff. And they get right, a little right. into, it, but not fully. And then the other thing I realized, so there, so there's a part of it that is fundamental but there's a part that's missing some fundamental. And then there's the other half of it, which is if you wanted to like write a really robust program, you're going to use a ton of open source information. Mm -hmm. So if you want to write some banking, some kind of financial software, you're not going to rewrite like interest, like different versions of interest calculators and all this stuff. Like th that's already been done. That's out there somewhere. And there's things that are, that probably have databases linked to them. There's probably chunks of code that query databases that everybody wants to use and you just throw it in there right there's open source yeah. databases of code yeah so at a certain point what if the best computer programmers hardly understand what they're doing because i could have gone through oh, and learned mm -hmm. how to pro code basically like i was learning it but i'm like i don't even know what's going on really like i get that i'm like telling it all programming languages are is logic Mm -hmm. And people think logic is like, well, that's logical. It's, it's a good idea. No, logic is like rules, like real hard and fast rules. Like if X, then Y, 
X, therefore Y. Like that is true. You know, like it has to be true. So whatever you can replace X and Y with variables. If digit in bank account equals negative, then charge one dollar uh, penalty fee. Bank account is negative, therefore one dollar penalty fee applied to. Like I just wrote like a penalty system. Right. right. You know, so it's that's very yeah, very simple code. Yeah, but also that's the logic that code is designed based on. And then, yeah, there's a whole philosophy of logic. and whatnot. Yeah, which is the symbolic logic. And then there's, you know, there's other things. It's actually kind of interesting that people recently have like stumbled across new rules that are like logical. And they're like, oh, this is logic too. Like, here's one. Oh, interesting. I don't know what the more recent ones are, but there have been like interesting, like logical truths stumbled upon by like certain log- logicians, I think is what they call them. Logisticians? Logisticians, or... yeah, something weird like that. Or whatever. I just remember reading it in one of the books, and I was like, wait, it seems like as soon as you realize logic, you could just figure out all of them right away, but it's like, no, it took a minute. Like, we weren't really sure what was logical and what wasn't. Interesting. Well, yeah, that's the kind of thing I was saying earlier. I think partly it's like you don't necessarily know what artificial intelligence is. I like, kind of have to do it, you know, like go out and do the things, try to like make it happen. And then you'll like learn a lot as you do it, you know, kind of like learning through experience and whatnot. But as a person, you can imagine whatever it is that makes you a human. Is it some just accumulation of those things? Does that become human? Like, does that because you can imagine that becomes very robust, which it does. Like it can beat you at chess. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It gets very good at the games that you teach. it, And some of those are actually some of those models that do those kind of things i don't think are actually that complicated it's just that humans are pretty weak like it's hard for us to remember a bunch of numbers and digits you know when you think of like a calculator right. or whatever or like a bunch of possible moves on a chessboard our computational capacity is low yeah we just it's literally like memory or capacity to hold stuff in the mind whereas the computer it all it's doing is holding stuff and going okay i gotta look at this cell I gotta look at that cell, da, 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 da. but it just does it in an instant yeah Well, I think I was going to say the one thing and then we'll go back uh, about not knowing the fundamentals. I think that is like a pervasive problem. Like as you get to higher levels of abstraction, I think, or as you learn things at higher levels of abstraction, you can lose the fundamentals and you can lose a depth of understanding. And I think that that happens like in school when people, they get too far ahead of where they actually understand in the like the layering of logical premises and whatnot. So you get people who end up in algebra or calculus who really didn't understand basic geometry or trigonometry or arithmetic. And because of those, you know, seeming misunderstandings or whatnot, you don't really fully grasp those higher order concepts. Now, that doesn't mean you can't do algebra and calculus though because you can learn the techniques and whatnot and how to apply them but that doesn't mean you understand them and it's interesting that learning the fundamental stuff doesn't even always it's like you actually don't need to know it to do what you're being asked to do but if your brain is messed up like mine is you'll get like a mental block because i remember being like in was it trigonometry or calculus or the combination of the two you know where they start doing like geometry and algebra and all that stuff together and you're trying to like make it useful and like real world applications and i was like 
I had to get a tutor, which cost almost as much as my tuition probably. <laughs> but he was really smart. It was a math major, you know, like he, all he cared about was like math. So he like read books on like the philosophy of pi, you know, just random high level, like old, old philosophical texts that were like the foundation of math. Anyway, so I was able to ask him one day, I'm like, look, I can't do this. Whatever we were doing, it had to do with like graphs and pi and all this stuff. I'm like, I don't, what am I doing? Like, I don't even know what these words mean, dude. Like, I just would get so frustrated. I'm like, what is sine? What is secant? Why are we saying secant? What is that? What is a secant of anything? That doesn't even make sense. And like transverse squiggles on graph paper. I'm like, I, I don't know why we're doing this. I don't understand anything about it. I'm just, you're like literally telling me to like, learn Japanese, but don't actually understand it, you know, just like do it. And I'm like, I, my brain won't let me like, I'm mentally just blocking all of this confusion out of my mind. And then he sat down and he explained like pi and sign and secant and all these different things. And he was like, it was really interesting. Look up just a visualization of any of that stuff. And it actually all does have an explanation. And it's not even that complicated. Well, yeah, of course. You know? Yeah. But we don't know. We don't learn any, any of that stuff. Yeah, you don't even need it either. It didn't help me do the math. It just helped me get rid of my mental block. Yeah, I mean, it is really fascinating when you get into it because I think pi is the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. It can help you figure out lots of things having to do with curved. I mean, with a circle. Right. The point is that the most beautiful and interesting part about that that I think is often overlooked, and I was never taught this in school, is that pi goes on forever. And there's something just interesting philosophically about the like circle is perfect and organic and a curve is like the most natural thing. And then when you try to translate it into a, a straight line, it doesn't, it doesn't ever perfectly translate. You can't the calculation never stops. Why did that no one say this? This is like the weirdest thing ever that a thousand years ago, somebody like figured this out. Right. Well, that's the whole thing is like we're trying to approximate natural, organic, observed things and phenomena, but you can't actually capture them perfectly, which is the whole interesting thing about like calculus and trigonometry and whatnot. It's like you're trying to like measure, you know, in calculus, one thing that you can do is like, you know, measure the area of a shape that has non-straight sides. Um, and you need calculus to do that. But the thing about calculus is it's an approximation. It's like it's actually we don't know how to measure the exact area because it's like we can't translate curves into our mathematics system. Like it just doesn't work. Like we have no way. It's like the pi thing. It's like, it's like everything is wrong. We have to have a symbol for like pi because we're like, we, you can't calculate it. It doesn't transmute into just numbers and logic. It's like, it may not even something be real. incalculable. It, like it doesn't, it's like, it's not quite, it's not quite all the way true, but it's like the best we could figure. Well, that's interesting. So I take that the other way that it's like, I think that, our mathematics system is not real. I think pi, whatever pi is, is like those things are the most real actually in our mathematics system because it's like it, yeah. it actually represents something very real and concrete. But then it's like when you say 3.14, it's like, well, that's not – that doesn't represent really anything. I mean it's an approximation of pi, but – Yeah, it's really, it's really odd. Anyway, I wanted to go back – I don't want to digress. That's very interesting. But 
to the art thing. That's what we were originally talking about is (laughs) art and how AI is making art, but it's not really art. And I think you can be fooled into thinking that it's art if you think that art is just derivations of prior art or whatnot. Is that the point I was making when I digressed earlier and didn't make a point? Yes, that Mm -hmm. was the point. That ultimately it's not impressive that the machine can jump 300 feet. Of course we can make a machine that can jump 300 feet. Can a human make himself jump 300 feet? That would be amazing. Exactly. Yes. So there's something there about our limitation as a human, I think, and our... This is a Phil Stutz thing, actually, to wrap it all together. Here we go. Our unstoppable will to go forward, as he would say... Despite our limitation and our suffering and our pain, uh, and that's very beautiful and that's very interesting. And there's something that can't be reduced to mere accomplishment or mere achievement or execution of a task or whatever it is. There's something about the human doing it that you can't just remove the human and then just have something do the thing. It's like no, it's like the human doing that. It's like overcoming incredible odds and producing something that just emerged out of, you know, its capability or whatever. That's really interesting. I wanted to take a pause and then we can come back. So, yes, I wanted to read some young. I was reading from this uh, work of his called On the Relation of Analytical Psychology to Poetry. So there, pretty famously, people back in the mid-19th century were applying psychology to art. And there's actually a famous essay, I think it's by Vygotsky. I think it's Vygotsky who wrote sort of an analytical essay on a piece of artwork, whatnot, that kind of took off and was very interesting. And so then there was a large movement to analyze art through the lens of psychology. And so Jung is sort of commenting on this uh, practice. So he says, in spite of its difficulty, the task of discussing the relation of analytical psychology to poetry affords me a welcome opportunity to define my views on the much-debated question of the relations between psychology and art in general. Although the two things cannot be compared, the close connections which undoubtedly exist between them call for investigation. These connections arise from the fact that the practice of art is a psychological activity and as such can be approached from a psychological angle. Considered in this light, art, like any other human activity deriving from psychic motives, is a proper subject for psychology. This statement, however, involves a very definite limitation of the psychological viewpoint when we come to apply it in practice. Only that aspect of art which consists in the process of artistic creation can be subject for psychological study, but not that which constitutes its essential nature. This question of what art is in itself can never be answered by the psychologist, but must be approached from the side of aesthetics. So he goes on to talk a little bit more about that. What book is that? I think it's an essay. It's called On the Relation of Analytical Psychology to Poetry, The Spirit of Man, Art, and Literature. 
So tell me what you think about what you read there, and I'll tell you what I think. Yeah, well, so he goes on to talk about how you can't reduce the art to mere psychology, and there's a tendency for psychological analysis of art to do that very such thing. And he goes on to talk about this general practice where he's like, oftentimes science wants to arrive at some causal deterministic model of something. And so we look kind of at a historical analysis. We look back to the things that caused something to emerge. It's kind of like akin to the Big Bang. It's like maybe the ultimate way of thinking about this. It's like you look to understand how and why is the universe the way it is? How can we understand it? And you look for some causal explanation, some deterministic explanation. And so you look back into history and then you look for the singularity from which it arised, you know. And so he was like, you can you know, think about the Big Bang like that. Not Carl Jung isn't saying this, I'm saying this. But he talks about it in the sense of lots of people will approach psychology from this angle of looking back to childhood or whatnot. And he's like, everything can be explained through looking at someone's childhood. And he's like, but that's very reductionist and doesn't actually help you understand the different things and shades of the person's psychology that have developed today. Like, there's just a development that goes on. He's like, but that doesn't mean that the things today, the differentiated functions and colors of the psychology and shades of the person's temperament and personality that we observe today are merely the singularity or the singular events that happened in its childhood, in the person's childhood. Well, what about in its past? What about in the past completely? Because it doesn't have to be just childhood, childhood or birth till now. Does he think it's more than even that, which is the totality of your life? So yeah, he's saying don't reduce it just to childhood, but you would he say you could reduce it to all of your experience or can you not do that either? Is that also too reductionist? I think the all of your experience would be fine. That would just be the total container. But you just can't reduce it back to childhood. Like Basically, he's saying me and Freud broke up. And exactly. he <laughs> thinks that it's all my mommy. <laughs> and I'm yes. telling you, it can't be that because I'm not as effed up as Freud. And <laughs> I'm going to tell you a new thing. I think that's what he was that's saying. That's true. <laughs> yeah. And he does talk about how Freud made some critical mistakes in the psychoanalysis uh, literature. Well, it does make sense. Like I would say if that was a great divide for them, it would make sense because in one kind of logical look at it is that like, look, it's not the totality because the thing now, the current time, which isn't, which is ephemeral is really the recent past. It's like yesterday when you felt like you needed to come in to talk to me this is the problem time. And you don't know why this time, which is really always a moment in the past is so bad the way it is. So if I had to come out of this time, that's so bad, I just approach the precipice of it. And that's called your childhood. It's just prior to now. So it's like a stage model of psychology, you know, where, whereas, cause I'm wondering if, if young wouldn't almost agree with the fact that actually it's not the sum total of your life either. Because he would probably want to pull in some extra thing that was maybe already here, that sub-psyche, subconscious, collective sub subconscious. I don't know. Yeah. Well, yeah, he goes on. I can't really condense what he said so succinctly. But, yeah, he sort of talks about being overly deterministic, uh, 
Like, he's like, if you could explain the art, you know, he, he talks about art, like merely through looking at the artist's psychology, personal life, or looking at the cultural influences around them, he's like, then there would be no variability. Like, the art wouldn't have anything special about it. You know, it's like it would just be completely So what explained. does he think the extra ingredient is? What is the thing then? Like, what's that extra piece? Well, he sort of says it's like a creative spirit or something. Um, he doesn't really define it. He's merely trying to point to the fact that, like, we try to reduce these things. And he's like, but the just the very fact that we have different words for art and science means that there's a difference of quality that has forced itself upon our mind or upon our mind. And he's like, that should be reason enough to recognize that the, these things are not reducible to the same sorts of whatnot. And he's like, and it's not that these, you know, the determinants don't play a role in the art or whatever it is that you're analyzing. He's like, but they're not the sum total of it. Um, and I think that that's, yeah, this is a long winded way of saying, I think that's sort of what's going on with the AI, whatnot. I think it's like we are sort of reducing everything to calculation and math and like whatever these large language models are actually doing. Like we're like, oh, that everything is just deterministic. Like if we could just figure out the model, like the the causal model that determines the output that we see, we could make art. And it's like, well, no, uh, and that's, I think it's like not obvious why that's not true, but because then you look at the art in Ukraine and you're like, oh, that's art. And it's like, but is it art? Like, is it really that interesting? Because, I mean, it can't even get freaking people right. Like, you look at the people that it draws and they're all effed up in all sorts of different ways. Like, they have two big eyes and like two long limbs and they're like missing a leg or something. But won't that, isn't the AI going to get better very quickly? Right. So here's that's a thought. So you're criticizing its ability, but I'm like, dude, it just woke up in a sense. Again, I, I ascribe zero consciousness to this thing. I'm just saying. But in a way, let's say it just woke up. It just turned on. So it's like learning. It's like babbling. And pretty soon it'll be talking. You know, it's scribbling. And pretty soon it'll be creating art. Now, hang on. So every now and then AI art has like a sixth finger or there's something off. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I would say if I were, if I were going to let myself give any artistic credibility to that kind of stuff that's coming from that, the only appreciation I could find for it is to be like, this is the thing about AI art. There's a blatant mistake somewhere. Mm, mm. And you might not even always see sure, it, okay. but there's going, it always will leave an uncanniness. So then I can imagine billions and billions and billions of AI. We just start making them, putting them in a, in a system, you know, and they develop a culture and we speed up time so we can see generation after generation and iteration after iteration of these things. What would the society that they develop look like? Let's not give them real world stuff. Let's give them the ability to manipulate a computer world, whatever, they may, you may end up with like the most interesting, like the abstract version of art. They've developed new kind of artistic styles, but it's all, now it all looks very Picasso. Like they've always have a huge, like they accent their mistakes because that's them. That's in the cult. That's what mm. AI has always been. That's where they distinguished themselves initially. That's how, by the way, that us, the human race distinguished itself from AI 
those two, you know, when you make those distinguishing points, that's the thing that creates culture and by dint of it creating difference between two groups. It's not always hostile. That's just some new bullshit with race relations and all this other stuff <laughs> they're trying to feed us. Differences are cool sometimes. Sure. Now, I don't think that any of what I said is true. I was just saying it because I there's something about art that we were trying to get at. And it's like, is there any art in the stuff in the stuff that's being called art that AI is making? Is any of that really art? And if it isn't, why isn't it? Yeah. And so there's two points. One was the one I just made. The other one is also, by the way, the whole point of the AI, if we just get back to reality, is to trick us. That's It's all going towards the Turing test. So what it wants to do is create that we want to be able to create an AI that can tell a real Van Gogh from a fake Van Gogh. And then we want to create another AI that can trick that AI because it makes so good at creating actual Van Gogh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So really, ultimately, it's it's trying to uh, achieve something and then keep going. Right. And I think that's the premise that we were trying to get at earlier. So you're like, if we can get it to create Van Gogh-like things that are so good that they fool us, then we will have taught it whatever it needs to know to create works of art like Van Gogh. Yeah. And I think that that's just a faulty premise. But let's face the facts. The fact that they're doing that, it, we have to admit, means that really at the core, they're trying to make literal, like they're trying to make go a golem. Like they're trying really what they want is also to go with it, a perfect human body. They want to create the new man. Hmm. I believe that fully. I don't know how far in the future the they is really ultimately thinking, but whatever it is they're following is that's the end result, I believe, because it's just part of the journey that it's going to have to take. And maybe one day it, it lets go of those physical bodies, but it's going to need that all that's going to converge at some point. And it's just crazy because like it really is. I'm just I'm not like saying anything mystical. I'm just saying what's going to happen. Like we kind of all know that robotics are going to get better. We're going to cross the uncanny valley with the way that our, you know, real feel and look doll things that are animatronic are going to get really, really good. We'll cross that uncanny valley. This this uh, AI speech generating thing will get even better, even more entertaining. We'll just put that in there. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll just put everything in this being and you'll have, why wouldn't you do that? It's like, it's begging to be done. Right. You know, like we're right there at the edge. So I think that's really weird. I think the movement and the fine detailed movement that people can do will be a uh, difficult. That'll be like the next, like if you want to make a million dollars, start working on that, those kind of robotics. Unless they're just keeping that hidden and they've got it done. Like fine motor movement, you mean? Fine, smooth motor movement. Like it's pretty impressive that we can move in such a quick and yet graduated way, you know? Right. Like that's definitely a big challenge with robotics. They've yet to build robots that can move in a very adaptable way. It's the difference between an on-off switch and a dimmer switch. Like we can move like a dimmer switch and hit sure, every, you know, whereas a, a robot, I think... It's very doing certain things is very jerky. You can see it like with the beginning, like you're mm -hmm. trying to, everything it does is a little too jerky. You've seen those animatronic hands they put on amputees and they'll be like, okay, now close your hand. And it's like, 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, like, it's definitely difficult, what? yeah, to figure that out. So you can't be a surgeon yet with a fake hand. Although I think there are some surgical robots that have been invented recently. Oh, I'm yeah. sure they're, that's what I'm saying. I'm sure they're much, much, much more advanced than I have any, I've, I don't see that every day, but I do see some of the things that pop up when they make those weird military dog walking things and you're what the things they can do is impressive it's creepy right they look heavy but they'll fix that too yeah the problem is that they're not adaptable i think that's the fundamental limitation that you'll always run up against is how to make it adaptable to its environment and that's i think why you need the sensory something like sensory organs yeah uh to feed it information so that it can get a model of the world around it and outside of it and then be able to navigate it. And then it needs good models with how to interpret that data coming from the external world. Because that's sort of our conception of what humans are doing is that we are creating models of what the external world is like outside of us that we assemble through, you know, the data that we get from our external senses. And that that model allows us to navigate the world and that those models that we have of the external world are constantly being updated by new information that we get from our senses and whatnot. Yeah. So that's a general explanation. Now, I think it lacks depth. It's very rationalistic, very cognitive uh, per se. I think it it reduces human functioning and the the vivid richness of human life to, uh, you know, causal predictive modeling. But, uh, yeah, that aside, to kind of dig deeper into what Jung was saying about the deterministic psychology and how there's something a little bit outside of our our reach with determinism and causalism. So he says, a purely causalistic psychology is only able to reduce every human individual to a member of the species Homo sapiens, since its range is limited to what is transmitted by heredity or derived from other sources. But a work of art is not transmitted or derived. It is a creative reorganization of those very conditions to which a causalistic psychology must always reduce it. The plant is not a mere product of the soil. It is a living, self-contained process, which in essence has nothing to do with the character of the soil. In the same way, the meaning and individual quality of a work of art inhere within it and not in its extrinsic determinants. One might almost describe it as a living being that uses man only as a nutrient medium, employing his capacities accordingly to its own laws and shaping itself to the fulfillment of its own creative purpose. There, he was talking about art in that last sentence. It's a horrible quote. I don't know if I agree with that. That's a horrible quote. I mean, it's... It's int- there's so much. Ben, to- why are you saying this? this sucks. <laughs> I don't mean it's a horrible quote. Like, it's very interesting, but I I'm not even sure that I agree. Like, so he's saying that well, that's a fine. purely yeah, causalistic approach with psychology within psychology. It sounds like is you. He's like, oh, you can only get down to the Homo sapien. Yes, but what is that a problem? Is he saying that good job that is the basic unit, or is he saying bad job because obviously there's a lot more going on? I'm not sure which one I'm supposed to conclude. Yeah, so he's saying that is the basic unit, and yes, you can do that, but you cannot equivocate the two things. Like what two things? 
the art or the plant is not the soil. But is psychology the... Psychology is like the soil. So when you like analyze someone's current psychological problems through the lens of their childhood trauma or whatever, or childhood, you can just, what you're, you have a tendency, I think is what he's pointing out, to reduce their current varied psychology to the much simpler psychology and events of childhood. And he's like, and they're just not the same. Obviously, the later or the latter, you know, your current psychology it has been shaped and determined by your earlier childhood state. But he's like, but it is not the same thing. And it has a character of its own. What is the plant? The plant is not the soil. The soil is, not is the, the nutrient soil. medium, according to yes. him. So what the hell does the plant, the nutrient medium, what do those represent as it relates to psychology, art, and all the rest? What's the analogy? I think I'm missing the analogy. Because he, de- I notice he does this thing based on the quotes you read. He'll tell you what things are not. But then I, I'm i like, what are things then? And it's like, I'm not sure if you're ever making, if he's ever getting to what it is, which I do that too. Like I, I can be all day like, I tell you what didn't happen. <laughs> I'll tell you what didn't happen. I tell you what didn't happen with this pandemic, but I can't tell you exactly what did happen. <laughs> I tell yeah. you what didn't happen on 9 11. But I can't think of what did happen because it's easy to tell you what didn't happen. No, he does try to get into it. It's just hard to talk about. But if I understood his analogy, maybe it would answer the question. So what is the analog to the plant and the soil medium? Yeah. So the soil, he's saying that while the soil like pre-exists, you know, the plant, you know, the plant grows out of the soil. He's like, you cannot reduce the plant to the soil and... Understanding the soil does not give you a full enough understanding of the plant. Like the plant has its own, it is a process in itself. Because there's a seed and everything and there's yeah. other stuff that goes It is its along. own being. It has internal mechanisms and whatnot that, you know, couldn't fully be explained by the soil. No one part explains the whole, like no one piece explains everything. But yeah. then I feel like he'd be saying that, God, is this pedantic? But I feel like he'd be, he was also saying that about psychology and the human I feel like he was yes. saying, like, it doesn't mm-hmm. work with... He was, like, flippantly just going, oh, it doesn't work with the human, obviously. And it's, like, first of all, not obvious, unless maybe you've read the rest of the paper. But he's saying the human psychology and the homo sapien are actually similar to the plant because you can't just be like, oh, psychology is everything or the person's everything exactly. or the past is everything or any of this kind of stuff. And then he's saying, just like that, we have the plant analogy... And just like that, we have the art analogy that now we're like, we're like, we've dug down, up, we've dug th- this direction, we're analyzing, we're analyzing, we're analyzing, and now we've gone, look, we did such a good job. Let's analyze some more stuff in this new paradigm. But you're like, you're, you put yourself in a paradigm and you don't even, your paradigm doesn't even contain half the stuff that matters because exactly. it's just, because now you're going, oh, well, we, we can analyze humans all the way down through psychology so now we can do it to very abstract things like art let's analyze art uh psychologically and he's going hey big mistake like it can be done but it can't be done because you're just it's a totally limited worldview right exactly because art is not psychology damn like, did i do a good job or what explaining that that was a really good job yeah. was it or was because, that am i gonna listen back to that and go oh i gotta cut this part out <laughs> no that's a really i thought that was really good because art and that's the point i wanted to hammer home is Art is not a person. It doesn't have a psychic process. Like art is like a piece of art on the wall. It's a painting. So he's saying you're doing a bad job analyzing people and now you want to do, now you want to analyze art and it's like, 
good luck with that. You've just like you can't do it. You can do it. You can yeah. analyze the part that a human created it and a human has a psychic process that you can think about like why did the human make this piece of art but he's like but you can't explain the rest of the art like the art is a thing in itself and it's like it can't it's not a psychic process so it doesn't fit to be studied by psychology completely i feel like freud was seeking man or the devil or something and young was neither one of them knew this i'm saying there was like an inkling of something, a mirage out there, and they're chasing it, each one of these guys. And it's a very tangible mirage, though. It's very convincing. And Freud is running one direction, and Jung is running towards another direction. And Jung's is more like chasing God and trying to understand that. Because he seems like he's saying, it, like a basic form of a lot of the stuff that you read from him, then then you transmit to me. So I'm literally third-partying this here. But <laughs> he's going... The parts, at least in this very specific example, young people leave me alone. Like <laughs> young people, young young people leave me alone. <laughs> Get off my lawn! <laughs> wow, you twelve-year-olds. <laughs> I mean, you young people. <laughs> you young people leave me alone. I feel like he's just basically saying, in this at least, the the whole is greater than the parts, and that's perplexing to me. And. Yes, there's something very gestalt about it. And then there's, oh, also a great guy to get into, but not today. And then Jung, or then Freud is looking very, he's looking so closely at just like the person or the pieces. And it's literally, he's developed theories known as like many, many of them are have to do with fixations. Like he was obsessed right. with fixations. I'm like, well, look how fixated you are on your fixations. Like it's like everything comes down to this. So it's interesting that there's that kind of duality between those two guys. It almost makes me find f- think of them as like mythical creatures, you know, mi- mi- like a mythology. It's like many years ago there was a fundamental, tri- you know, understanding of man that had bifurcated and went and for a long time they went to they tried to travel the road together and a little, you know, it like it's it could be like a story. It's kind of wild the those guys' trajectories. Yeah, it is really interesting. They have a really interesting interplay in their lives because Freud taught Jung initially and then they had a schism where Freud broke away from Jung later in his life. And yeah, that's an interesting way to describe it because that is sort of what Jung talks about in that particular uh, essay. He says, Freud has these premises in his analytical methods where he's like, everything is reducible to infantile sexual desires. Which is kind of disturbing. It's a little disturbing. Yeah, it's a little weird. And Jung is sort of like, gives it credence. So he's like, I mean, you can, there is something there like about infantile sexual urges that you can observe and study and think about. It's, and a, like, it's the fact that we come to sexual maturity within a psychology is is weird because you can look at like, you literally go as a little boy, I understand there's lots of like new things to be now, but like as a little boy, you go, girls are icky a lot of times, not always, you know, I actually <laughs> right. had a lot of, I, I had a lot of, even young, I had a lot of friends that were girls. I was sure. just a little or bit. Or boys are icky if you're a girl. Right. Same thing. Or they, there's cooties, whatever. Yeah. And who, there's so much more to it than like a sexual analysis. Obviously, there's just right, like right. cooties don't exist. You've been taught this anyways. <laughs> you know, there's a word for it that pre-existed you as a toddler that's called cooties. We can say it. You know what I mean? There's just there's this whole thing. And then at some point, you literally go through a change psychologically as well as physically. 
you know, and it's like, is there something going on that's like ultimately kind of sexual because this it's a sexual maturity that you arrive at and a psychological thing switch comes along with that. And to say in these years before that, something else is going on, but isn't it there? Like, isn't it's there to emerge at least like what's going, you know what I mean? So I can get, I, I get the weirdness and you know there's the point that freud was dealing with like the elite like very rich people who had you know like hours and hours and hours and hours to spend just laying on a couch and saying things and whatever and there's there's always seems to be a connection in my mind like the caligula thing like with a lot of power and leisure and money debauchery sometimes ensues like weird because i think and i think it's kind of Mm, sure a little obvious because it's like if you're Daily life is very primitive, you know, like you're in the fields, you're doing work, you're trying to survive, you're making things that you need, you know, there's not as much makeup application in that society. There's not as much sexual signaling, intentional sexual signaling, or if there is, it's very different or the the connection between your sexual partner is probably very different and based upon much, much, much more than looks. In fact, that may have almost nothing to do with it. Because you, in a sense, according to the elite anyways, you're all disgusting and ugly and don't have nice teeth and mm-hmm, don't have clean mm-hmm. clothes and don't wear jewels and don't clean as often. You know, all of these things. So, Well, just to say it's much more out of necessity because you're living closer to the end of your means. So Freud was a product of his environment in a, in a sense. That, and I wonder yeah. if he ever pointed that out about himself. I don't know. but Well, that's interesting. You brought up two things. One... Yeah, to say something later in development, like so sexual urges and interests develop later, like you emerge into sexual maturity. And then to say that you're sort of like presupposing that, well, it must be there before and you have infantile sexual desires, but that may not actually be true. Like that could be false. Like maybe something transforms into sexual urges and desires, but isn't itself. Yeah, sexual like urges you could, so which, which would indicate that Freud's analysis could almost be completely upside down and couldn't be further from true because it, he just totally missed he didn't even see the soil at all or he only saw the soil or what you know he's just like whoop you just you could be told you've jumped into a paradigm and your paradigm is like kind of you're in the middle of it you can't even see outside the eye of the storm exactly yeah so i think that's the other thing is i think uh Young is saying, yeah, everything is kind of reducible, like from one, everything emerges. But what that one thing is, is like kind of beyond our understanding. Like, you know, he's like saying, "Okay, yeah, the art did emerge from, you know, these things that happened earlier in the person's life and the culture and whatnot. But he's like, but the art one is like the art is not those things. Two is like whatever the culture and the person's life are. You can't actually capture that very clearly and simplistically. It's like the containing unit that produced the art later is like a little more amorphous and hard to actually pin down because the farther you go back into the recesses of something, it's like the more, I think, difficulty you have with describing it. Like the Big Bang. We talked about that. It's like if you were to like be like, okay, well, everything's the Big Bang. You know, It all goes back to this one something really, really small and dense exploding. And it's like, well, what is that? And then you're like, yeah, yeah, like we don't know. And it's like, well, exactly, because it's like the containing unit for everything we observe today. He's admitting he's chasing God and he's he's admitting you can't grab it. You can't get it. Yeah, it's you like you just, you don't know what it is. 
Yeah, it's it's complicated. Now let's I could tie this back to what we're talking about with AI and poetry. Oh yeah, you want to talk about poetry. Well, you ended up making my point anyways, I think, with the young stuff. I think we kind of got to it ultimately just in a different kind of way, like a roundabout way. But here's a couple little thoughts. So one sentence that came to mind while we were talking was this is symbolically, uh, not literally, but symbolically, this is the thing that came into my mind, that we may be teaching, quote unquote, teaching, giving AI or this computer programs, whatever we're calling this stuff, this GPT or whatever, whatever computer stuff we're giving to it a form of magic through giving it language models. We're teaching it how to understand or how to not understand how to do and have a, some kind of understanding, a type of understanding of human language, you know, like the, maybe the rules to grammar, the exceptions to the rules, the structure of sentences, where does the verb and the subject and the preposition, it could probably name those things. At some point, I wonder if it could ever actually grasp what a preposition really is. The man walked through the portal. What does What is through? But I can also imagine that you actually can ask those questions and like a calculator can access all the math and numbers and stored stuff very, very, very quickly. You give all that information to, or it develops it on its own through a learning model, whatever. You give all that to something. What will emerge there? It is an open question. Mm -hmm. Because at some point, I think it will escape our grasp because it will essentially trick us. It will exit the uncanny valley. And then I think that's where we're going to go. Wait a minute. What's happening? You know, if it's something like consciousness starts to emerge, you're going to go and we're going to bump up against the the infinite question we can never possibly answer, which is, who are we? What are people? What is consciousness? Yeah. Well, I think it will definitely get to a point of complexity that is beyond our capacity. And we'll never like answer. be able to do such complicated things. Yeah. And we'll never answer what Dave, I think his name's, I know his last name's Chalmers, a, 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 one of my favorite philosophers. But he's coined the term as it relates to consciousness. It's called the hard question. And he's like, we, got, we, we need to answer the hard question. And it's hard. That's the whole thing about it, and it's consciousness, and it's so difficult. It's literally called the hard question. And some people that are also just as prominent and on the cutting edge like Dan Dennett, I think, would ultimately say, you're fooling yourself. It's not hard. It's a trick. It's just an illusion. And you can plow through it that way, and that's, I think, very dangerous. But here's my – if there's anything we need to discuss there, that's fine. But my poetry point here – so now poetry is very hard and tedious and difficult to understand. Some people like it, love it. Some people hate it. It's kind of a weird thing. And some of the, there's like haikus and different, all the different types of poetry are kind of defined by their limitations. So that's what is, allows us to say this person is a great poet or it's a great artistic expression because you're, you could be communicating something very deep, very interesting, very sad very whatever just something 
and you have to do it constrained within so many syllables or words that rhyme or in a pattern, in a, in a tempo, in a certain number of lines. There's all sorts of types of poetry. And the rules are the rules. And you could give that easily to a computer pro. I mean, you, it does it now. It can do it, you know, and they sound really great. So when it when ChatGPT or whatever does produce something that's poetry, what makes it good if it's poetry? Is it that it followed all the rules? What is it about that? Because now it can do it too. So we've given it some magic to do this thing that people do, but it's like, is a calculator a really great mathematician? Yeah, you get back to the Elan Vital, I think, which is kind of like... The a life essence. Yeah, it seems dead. It's like where, like the poetry, the best poetry is like alive. There's like a spirit, a seed, a kernel of something there, a spark maybe of something. And it's like if the computer does it, I just, I feel like it lacks that. It's like dead in the sense that it's only pulling from material. It creates what they call in philosophy a philosophical zombie. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Which is basically something that's human, just like you. It could be an exact replica of any of us and be totally indistinguishable. Basically just turn it just say that it's AI though. It's all robotics AI, you know, or but it's a biological robot. It's actually completely similar. You know, like what is the thing? Is it the the meat and blood and stuff? Is it the what is it? Because I can't tell the difference here between you and your philosophical zombie. But if I say that I take away whatever, the Ilan Vital, the vital essence, the thing that makes it have consciousness, because once it's that advanced and it can trick us, because we haven't answered the hard question, this is what I think. It's why it's so important. Because we haven't answered the hard question, we won't know how to, what to do in that case. We won't know what's right, what's okay, what's the best course of action. And it makes me think, like many things that is done in human society, we shouldn't, perhaps we shouldn't be doing it at all. Because perhaps you are trying yet again to build the Tower of Babel. You know, you're doing some offense against creation. You're doing some offense against God, or you're doing some offense against humanity or reality or something you're doing is not quite right. And there's many other simpler forms of this question that I don't want, that I feel like if you bring them up, they feel like they cheapen that because you could be like, well, what about the creation of a gun? It's like a theoretically just a killing machine. It's like, yes, but there's so much more nuance around some of those things. But this conversation, I feel like actually boils it down and actually exposes the complexity of it. I wanted to say too, the the hard problem, just so people know, uh, is about the relationship between physical phenomena and brain states or psychological phenomena, uh, your conscious experience, perhaps. And so the question is really, why are physical processes ever accompanied by an experience? Which is easy to imagine when you say we give a bunch of human functions to an AI or a robot or something. Are they having an experience? Is there anything that it's like to be a philosophical zombie? And the answer is no, I think maybe Chalmers would say the answer is no, there's nothing because that's my thought experiment is I'm saying that there's nothing that it's like to be that, but that it is yet still there. There is still a, a replica of you that's indistinguishable from you, but it there's nothing that it's like to be that thing. 
I wrote this, I think we released this episode, I don't know, but I wrote a paper that tried to deal with that as well. And my take was, I don't think it would make it like something to be the philosophical robot if you did this to it, but you can't do this to it. And that that's interesting, which is no two experiences can be the same. Even if there's a replica of you, if the replica of you wanted to fully have your experience it would have to be in the same physical location. All the atoms or particles or whatever would have to be exactly in the same space, which is is connected to time. So this is like our fabric of physics, the fabric of reality. And perhaps there is something to that. Maybe if you could do that, that works, which is even more of a strange philosophical motif because, or even metaphysical motif because it gets very it gets very mythological and symbolic if you imagine trying to incarnate kind of like a soul into something so the thing will already exist and then you have to give it that that essence it has to be put right into where that thing is well i think that's the where i was taking that is like really it's really interesting if you think about that so imagine you could do it Imagine you could create a replica of you, complete, you know, all the atoms in the right place in the same space-time as you. So it would be, like, completely just overlaid on you. What would that be like? And then you might think... Maybe it is like possession. There's you and there's the demon. How could there be two experiences happening at the same time? But then it gets even more twisted, I think, because then you're like... How could there be two experiences in the same time space? It would have to mean that those things are integrated. Would fundamentally change, right? They would it would fundamentally redefine the thing itself. Right. They couldn't remain distinct if they're in the same time space, so they would have to merge somehow. Which then you think about is every person a merging of an infinite number of themselves, multiple consciousnesses? You know, it's like what does that mean? Like, well, you that's have, so then you get to crazy. You get to epigenetics and ancestors and the link between that that is actually now seen in bio, bio physical biology and biological science that is like super difficult to understand like epigenetics is like what's happening like you have an experience as an adult that you could have not had and that when you have had it that that experience somehow actually does pass on to future generations which we observe in epigenetics I'm no expert but I know that I've seen the study some studies that indicate this and that's weird it's like we our science is so limited by our paradigms yeah there's even research now that memories can be passed on from one generation to the next which is very people thought that was impossible for a while not the fanatics generational trauma you know all these things that yeah creatures of weird backwoods snake handling no i don't know i'm just saying just there's been idea that used to be called quackery you know or some pseudoscience or bs you know yeah it's a it's a anyway it's an interesting question that we've hit i've uh it's yeah a big okay. wide world out there can ai make art yeah first you have to tell us what Who is does? art what is yeah. <laughs> what is ai what is art what is is answer the hard what problems is make? first what is create yeah anyway well we'll catch you next time bye bye <laughs>